Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, welcome back to Belonging Podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here, coming to you in the final trimester of my pregnancy, in the peak of midsummer, in a moment of feeling ripe on the vine (laughs) in my body, (laughs) and um, realizing this year, 2020, has been such a, um, well, one I never could have predicted, right? Maybe you feel the same way, and has been one of incredible learning, being with uncertainty, with learning my capacity, with challenging my assumptions, uh, with so much happening, moving, emerging in this world and in my body. So I'm, I'm so grateful to you for joining me here for another episode of Belonging as I continue to peel the layers of this eternal onion <laughs> and just take you along for the ride. This is very much not like the master is in session and teaching you. This is very much us exploring together this concept of belonging and I have been wanting to bring on this person, Rachel Rice, on to the podcast for at least the last year. I've just always had such an admiration for for her. And, you know, when you think someone is so cool and so interesting and so brilliant that you other them to a space of almost like putting them on a pedestal and um, the idea of reaching out to her felt like, ah, can I do that? And so I waited until the time felt right. And this time felt right. And you'll hear how 
how beautiful our connection was on this episode. And now I think I can consider her a friend. Thank you, Belonging Podcast, for bringing these people into my life and into your life. So who is Rachel Rice, you may be asking? Well, I believe Rachel Rice would identify herself first and foremost as an artist, someone who is depicting this world as she sees it and and what she sees coming, which she talks about in this episode. She's also a prolific writer and educator and death doula. And her work lies at the crossroads of grief, radical togetherness, creative expression, death, learning, and magic. I can say that Rachel's art and writing and speaking have really expanded my lens of the world as I work to decolonize my mind and awaken to a deeper, more real, more radical experience of this world. And so I asked her to come on to talk about death, knowing that we would weave a conversation that goes so much deeper than just death, because death is a part of life. It's a part of all things. And there was something, when we recorded this, you'll hear covid was a primary, a primary thing up for us. I'd say it's still a primary. There was a nearness of death that felt so potent, so intense, like I could smell it. And um, if you've been listening for a while, you know, I have been in the very slow process of training to be a death midwife. And I brought on my teacher earlier this year, no, last year, Derek Grace Lyons to talk more about it. So this is a continuation. I sort of see it as a part two to that conversation, the much more expanded lens, because Rachel has really made it a part of her practice in life to talk about and bring forth this concept of death. So she quotes this phrase, the way we approach the problem is part of the problem. And really brings in that we live in a death phobic society, but we live in a society that believes in unfettered growth and doesn't distill upon us that life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that there's consequences when we pretend that things don't end because they do. And that life does end. And that we are students of consequence and limits. And I love how she says, to her mind, we are all in an underworld journey, which are rarely taken voluntarily. And that feels deeply true for me. How about you? Being swept under into the space of really being in the shadows, not just looking at the shadows, being in the shadows. And really understanding what the limits are. It's, it's a radical reframing of what's happening to us that's always been. She talks about this is not human beings first rodeo with this. This is a radical remembering. As she says, we are elders in training, which means we are students of limits. And I ask her about how can we transition our nervous systems to orient towards honoring death? And she gives a really interesting answer about how she looks at parenting with this, understanding the difference between comfort and shelter or refuge and how that leaves our children wanting more, and why we have a lack of ritual and rite of passage in our societies, in our communities, in our lives. And if we didn't live in a death-phobic culture, death wouldn't be as traumatizing as it is. 
and seeing your dying as a cultural artifact that is a transmission of your wisdom, not necessarily a statement of style. Oof, she is a prolific, beautiful speaker. The words that come really land in my bones in a really deep way. She shares somatic grief embodiment practices to normalize and honor death. And if you were listening to our last episode with Shauna Jans, she talks more about that as well. And leaning towards enchantment, myth, and loving the good green earth, seeing it or her as an alive enchanted being and how we can bring comfort to ourselves in this radical remembering of animism or this belief that it is all alive around us and that it is in the cycle of birth, death, rebirth over and over and over again and things do end. And how can we be present and alive in this time and questioning what we've been taught. I loved, I've listened to it a few times now because when I'm interviewing someone, I don't always catch all the wisdom. So I like to listen again, just to get a real, a real in-depth picture of what it is that we wove together with our voices. So I present this to you, a conversation with Rachel Rice. I actually just got we we got we just got our chickens. You got chickens. We got our chickens. Have you They're had chickens st- before? Nope. We are we we are new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I was watching your um your video with uh, Rain and I'm sorry. Who's the other one? Oh, Melissa and Melissa. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you were like, those were some expensive eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and you had said that, and I we like. We're going the next day to get our chickens. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Startup costs are are up there. And I oh, we have a lot of friends who live in like um, farm country. And they're like, to know chickens is to know death. Like mm-hmm. it's true. It, it will be very intense. And um, so I think Tim and I were pretty much like, we're ready to do the hard work that we have no idea that's ahead. We know it, but like. I'm so committed to like, I talk so much about ancestral skills, like let's do it. Yep. I got to fumble my way, you know, in remembering. And that means like, I'm probably going to have a really horrifying chicken incident, you know, and I'm I'm like, okay, okay. That's okay. I'm okay. And I, I'm ready to like sort of stop living this life of like, uh, what's the word? Like, so it's so um, vanilla. <laughs> I don't know if that's oh. the word. Like palatable so much that I lose, like lose sense of what like is wild and what is actually life giving and and death. And that death is a part of all of this, which is the best segue I could ever have for this interview with you right now. <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> Rachel Rice. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me for belonging. I'm just such a fan of yours and I love the way you think and I love the way you share your work in the world and mm. your art is so inspiring and yeah, just a lot of gratitude for you being here with us. Wow. Likewise. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Yeah. So the question I'm now asking folks when they come on, it used to be who are your people, but I realized that was too limiting. So now the new question is, what do you belong to? Mm. 
that's a really good one. And it's tender um, yeah. because it's not always, I belong to the longing to belong. Mm. You know, I think that that's a, a very much a, um, an aspect of, of dominant culture is this, is this lack of belonging and the way that we have to map ourselves onto really like crap systems in order to get the belonging. And so we're kind of seeing that with like all the rise of the white nationalism stuff, you know, that's the, that's the belonging that's been offered by our culture. Mm. And so I do not feel that that's not a place of um, belonging for me. Um, Although it's definitely kind of the, the main one on the menu, but I belong to my relationships and those include with humans and the more than human world. I belong to this particular place right now, which is the lands of the Chinook in a place called Portland, Oregon. Um, and I live in the, in the Northeast quadrant. And so I belong to this very big maple tree that I'm looking at, which is kind of the, the main um, character in my, in my backyard. I belong to, I belong to a few different lineages. The one that is sort of most in my forward thinking right now is um, the lineage of the practitioners of a type of sorcery from the Norse peoples that engaged in an activity called Viking, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is kind of more of a verb than a noun. And it's just means raiding and being pirates, (laughs) Mm. pretty, pretty violent stuff. But there was by and large, most people in the lineage that I belong to in Sweden and, and, other parts of Scandinavia were pig farmers that didn't go Viking. A lot of, a lot of just regular folk, but the uh, ancestral tradition that I'm studying right now is around the magical practices, which were primarily done by women. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the, the ones that engaged in the sorcery practices often then took on a different gender, which was really interesting too. But it's by and large, it's prophecy. By and large, it's visioning the future and in my work now is I see the new world coming. And this has been a thing kind of my whole life where I've been like, man, I see what's coming, <laughs> you know, and kind of sometimes often <laughs> before the rest of the world kind of catches up to, to certain aspects of that, or I shouldn't say the rest of the world, but the rest of my world, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and so then years later, it'll be like, oh, yeah, that thing did happen. And so I belong, I belong to a lineage of women that, that saw what's coming and acted as if that was true you know, lived in a way that, that was congruent with like the future that we see. I belong to my children, which I did not give birth to. I am, mm-hmm. I'm actually, I had a total hysterectomy in my, in my late thirties. And I was also very much chose a child-free life as much as a public school teacher, <laughs> you know, might otherwise have a lot of kids, you know, in my world, but I didn't, feel like it was my, I didn't belong to the idea of a nuclear family. And even now, I don't necessarily belong to a nuclear family, but I belong to a type of radical togetherness where there isn't such a thing as other people's children. Mm. So I belong to a certain amount of ideas as well. I don't know, it could kind of go on. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's a start. Okay. And then there's Kevin. There's always Kevin and he, I'm in my studio right now, which is just a garage, but he is not climbing all over. Like as soon as I do a recording, he's like, oh, I need to step on your keyboard, but he's, (laughs) he 
he's a good, he's a really good bad boy. <laughs> Definitely yeah, belongs is, to Kevin. This is your cat. I have, a, so I'm very into Kevin. <laughs> like, You're not alone. <laughs> what? Okay. So last summer I was in, I was, oh, I was like jet lagged in Scotland with Tim, my partner. And we just like needed to look at social media or something just to like pass the time in this and it was like summer solstice there was like no sunset we were just like wah and so I found all your Kevin highlights (laughs) (laughs) aren't they great and and we just went through them and it was it was amazing so thank you for sharing him (laughs) yeah he's a terror he's he's really got I've had about I've probably had about 12 cats over the course of my life and this this guy is like the guy he's got quite an agenda and quite a personality like he seems to really be a person <laughs> like <truly>. yeah I <laughs> feel that yeah <laughs> right yeah the lessons our cats teach us mm-hmm. okay can we talk about death always I'm, I'm fun cool. at parties like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so we've had one other episode focus on death here on belonging it was right after I completed the first sort of set of courses for becoming a death midwife. So really focusing on home funerals. Right. And I brought on my teacher, Jerry Grace Lyons, to talk about it. And the resonance with Mm -hmm. the community was like zing Mm -hmm. so much to be shared. Mostly people wanting to share with me their story of either a traumatic death where that taught them that they're like, oh, this is the wrong way, you know, of like a parent, a family member, uh, where, you know, um, the medical interventions that were trying to prolong life actually prevented the honoring of death or yep. folks who were able to see some sort of ancestral indigenous ritual or or ritual that just came out of them unknowingly in a death process with a beloved one, even animals. And and I just thought, wow, there's there's a lack of space mm-hmm. in our culture to talk about this. And I know that you provide hospice support Mm -hmm. and that you have done a lot of work in death doula and in your experience as an artistic being and all of it. So I would just love to dive in with you about mortality and ancestral connection to death and death phobia. And um, we were sort of talking about it before I hit record with your own experience with your family, but I'm not sure where you want to start, but it's, it's just something I crave I crave to speak about more. Me too. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, well, we're certainly in a time where we're reckoning with limits, you know. And as I enter my 40s and have been, you know, looking at what does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to be a parent, especially when you're a reluctant one? <laughs> What's being asked of us? And even living through this global pandemic, there's this way that we see that like bio Okomalafe, one of my teachers says, you know, the way we approach the problem is part of the problem. And this also comes out of some conversations with Tad Hargrave where, you know, we've been kind of talking with each other about like, what's the message of the time? What's the message also that the virus is bringing us? And how is it that when we wage war and enter into battle with, you know, a being and a question mark life form, that has the most 
uncharted genetic material on the planet, that viruses are um, some of our oldest ancestors. They are much, much tinier than bacteria. They exist in every single ecosystem and are totally essential to life on Earth and totally essential to the how life evolved on Earth. And in the way that we're kind of understanding our guts to have um, like a biome of yeast colonies and bacteria colonies, there's also a virome or a virome, which is, you know, the colonies of viruses that also exist in, in our bodies and help our bodies. So to my mind, there's a real big connection between how the dominant culture that has sort of taken over um, a lot of the systems of the planet um, is so predicated on unfettered growth that yeah. we have complete, there's no, there's, there's a sense of a lack of consequence and that a particularly American culture, um, North American, United States, Nian <laughs> culture is very much about unfettered growth and the triumph of the individual and the bootstraps and the meritocracies and all those lies that we're seeing actually don't give up, don't, don't instill upon us the idea that our life has a beginning, a middle and an end, and that there's actually a consequence to the ways that we, when, when we pretend as if things don't end, that then we are going to get a message that in fact they do. And, and I really wonder if that's a big part of what we need to understand in this time, especially in a global pandemic, when it's saying clearly, no, this needs to stop. Certain things need to stop. The way the virus has been propagated worldwide is so directly related to you know, these economic paradigms of unfettered growth where a certain class of people get to fly around the world and do all these things you know, spreading like all kinds of, of diseases the way that, that we've done. And the idea that you're going to like make war on these, on these messengers that very much are kind of on the scene of the crime, but we're like, Ooh, you're the murderer. And they're like, no, you know, we're here to, we're here to tell you that some, some shit needs to stop, <laughs> you know, yeah. and we're going to show you this way. We're going to show you that way. And we're like, no, 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 pew, pew, pew. And we shoot at them, you know, and they're like, <laughs> No, no, we're telling you, you're you're jumping off a cliff here, species, humans. Like, and and we're like, no, we're gonna and bang, 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 and we shoot them, and they're like, okay, you know, and then they come back with another wave. Like, no, you actually can't keep going the way that you've been going. And there's a big dragon coming, and if you don't listen to us, and we bang, 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 and then the dragon shows up. And like my friend Tad Hargrave said, wow, it came out of nowhere. Mm. But that's, that's, that's where we're at. Like we're, it's a, it's a battle. It's a war. The nurses are soldiers. It's a front line. My sister's like, I'm being deployed. I'm like, holy crap. We can't, we can't even look squarely in the eye, the thing that's brought us the lesson of our limits. Mm. And that to me is exactly what, that's what we need right now is we are students of consequence. We are students of consequence and limits. That, that seems to be a big part of, of, the death phobia relationship to the situation that we're in now. And so to my mind, we are all in an underworld journey <laughs> and journeys to the underworld are very rarely voluntary. Mm. And so here we are, like, I personally don't find a lot of inspiration in like ascension narratives, like the rising up and the sort of more um, star oriented stuff. Like for me and for my relations, like going in towards the earth and not away from it seems to be the ask right now. Um, going I towards relate the soil. to that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And the soil is good because 
of death. That's, that's where life comes from. So we're going to go towards the place that life comes from, which is counterintuitive to our culture because it looks like going towards something that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Like, like Mars, <laughs> like the like star. Mar- exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's such a, com- that's such a conversation in my home with a, a space, like a, yep. a space junkie partner. And I'm yep. just like, but compost is our greatest teacher. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I think we can pause. I think we can pause the space exploration right now and maybe work on our Earth understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really love, like, I love space, and you know, I'm I'm a psychonaut. I've I really enjoy journey work through plant medicines and things like that. And mm-hmm. so I like to blast off too. Um, yeah. But in terms of where the work is, in terms of what's being asked of us. To my mind, we are becoming, we're elders in training, like Stephen Jenkinson likes to talk about. And that means yeah. being students of limits. And I think that that's a big message of the virus. And I'm not trying to be like, ooh, the virus is our teacher. And, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not into the spiritual bypass crap of like some of the rhetoric that I've seen <laughs> in certain yeah. spiritual leaders, 9,000 word essays and stuff about how we're all undergoing a coronation. Like that's such bullshit, you know, mm. we're, we're not all having the same experience. Um, and the right. lessons that it's bringing forward are going to be different based on the impacts. So here we are, you know, having, having the idea, even in the personal growth field, that unfettered growth is a good thing. So how do we as, so it's interesting because I feel this understanding of like the death phobia that I like, it's sort of like the soup I've been swimming in, you know, my whole life. And, and I think what's really sort of initiated me into this deeper understanding of accepting that death is, is just as important and should be revered as much as birth was, um, well, I'm not sure. In this moment, I, I feel like the wildfire season here in Northern California really took me there mm-hmm. to a place of like paralysis, fear, eco-anxiety, eco-grief, and then facing my own uh, mortality. And it's it's just been a fucking journey of yeah. like, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. And then just sort of like the rhetoric around disease, you know, it's like, we're going to be a fighter. We're going to fight this. And I always feel so sad when that comes into play with community members who are sick. And I, and I crave, I crave ritual beyond just like the traditional funeral, which is why I ended up getting into death midwifery. And so, because I feel like you've been steeping yourself in this far longer than I have, like how, and, and you're speaking to this like global moment we're in of like, Let's try, you know, like everyone's approach to this virus feels very much from this um, perspective of like, keep death as far away as possible. So how, how do we transition our like nervous systems into a place? Because we're missing out on such an important part of life, which is honoring death. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it truly makes me feel a deeper sense of belonging to acknowledge, greet, and and I'm a, I feel like a baby in the deep end, but I'm just like okay, I want the rest of my life to be one of like death eldership. Like, how do we shift that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there's a there's partly as for me, it's a lot of my work is around parenting and really examining where I've sort of bought into bullshit ideas. <laughs> um, here's yeah. here's one. <laughs> 
my kids deserve the best. Hmm. No, they fucking don't. <laughs> I hope this is a PG-13 rated podcast. <laughs> we put the little E next to it, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, sorry. Feel free to bleep me out. No, no, um, no. It's, you can just go for it. We're okay. Great. Right, right. But, you know, like just interrogating some of our sort of unquestioned beliefs around the type of lifestyle that we feel entitled to. My kids do not deserve the best. In fact, they deserve profoundly less than perhaps what all of us got as children. I mean, if we're seeing the consequence of unfettered growth and the idea that we can just have renewable energy and everyone on earth gets an iPhone, it's, there is an end stamp on this culture. There's an end stamp on it. And I feel like we're kind of in a time where we're seeing the expiration date sort of, you know, do the reverse disappearing ink thing, you know, where it kind of, it's been blurry, you know, it's like, oh, I see the stamp. There's a bright red, like expiration date on how we can keep going like this. Clearly, we can't keep going like this. Clearly, the systems are buckling. And so we tend to kind of double down and you know, like you said, sort of retreat into a kind of comfort. And I think part of it is understanding the difference between comfort and shelter and how comfort can be a very numbing experience that, that leaves our, that leaves our children wanting something more. And because we don't initiate, I mean, that's part of the conversation is just that we do not actually initiate people into true adulthood by having a ritual process for youth when they start to individuate and their hormones start to come through and they start to be like, wow, I want more. I want more out of life than whatever this bullshit is <laughs> where I'm supposed to go and go to college and get a job. Like really, that's, that's the best we can do. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. For two weeks of vacation a year. <laughs> yeah. That's the dream. Like, yes. you know, and so we're seeing young people go, yeah, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't really sound like a dream. And so how do we then in the absence of initiation, and, and there is that idea that, you know, this global pandemic is a type of initiation, that we're all getting getting a real up-close view of what it looks like when we pretend that death doesn't happen. You know, now suddenly there's there's bodies being seen from, from Google Earth lined up in the um, refrigerated trucks. And like these are images that are they're they're hard, but they're not they're not traumatizing in and of themselves. Like if we didn't live in a death phobic culture, death wouldn't be as traumatizing as it is. Mm-hmm. But finding ways to do more with less and and to, and to really resist this idea that comfort is the goal when when really we want to talk about shelter and we want to talk about refuge. And I think Martin Shaw, you know, Martin Shaw said a really interesting thing around shelter and comfort, and, and he said shelter gives us enough ground to behold a wider world. Comfort can dull us into merely seeing, but the porosity of shelter raises us to beholding. Mm. So the idea that there's kind of holes in it, it's not perfect. You're not going to always feel comfortable, but that's how you get to see what's actually occurring. You know, and but your question mm. to your question of like, what do we do in our nervous systems? It's very, very challenging. And we've lived through it before. This actually isn't humanity's first rodeo with dealing with some of this stuff. But I think part of what's essential is to push back against this kind of, I don't know what you call like a malignant amnesia, (laughs) you know, where Mm -hmm. we don't have any sense of history because it doesn't matter. It's all future. It's all potential. It's all, 
you know, the American dream of whatever you want to be. And I see that in the death doula world, honestly, it's very Mm -hmm. focused. It's very like, it's kind of like being patient centered (laughs) or student centered, or I'll even get in trouble for saying this, but survivor centered, like the, the person doing the dying shouldn't necessarily be in charge of the process. Oh snap. Like I will, I said what I said, Mm. (laughs) like, who determines what determines the the trajectory of the process well what should determine it is the health of the community the community is what is is the seat of the decision making communities made up of elders and and people who have lived through some shit you know but if we put all of the onus on the person who's dying on the survivor on the most traumatized person in the room to determine the process for how that all goes, then the culture actually misses out. Dying people often, in my experience, they die the way they lived. And most people live in a death phobic way. And so it's a, it's a, it's a constant state of resistance until, you know, you succumb. It's a lot of pretending until you can pretend no more. And even then, you know, the highlight reel that's shown at the home funeral doesn't really show um, the dying person crapping their pants or having their mouth sponged out or the way they look like a dying person, like that's not featured. You know, it's just the highlight reel. And so in my work, I have not always been the most popular death doula in the room because I'm like, there's a lot of dying people that have bullshit ideas about how the dying should go that does not serve the culture. The process mm-hmm. needs to serve the culture, not the person. And that's the same with art as well. Like the artist's job is to reflect the times, not just to reflect themselves. Like you're dying is not your final personal style statement. Okay. <laughs> it's not a fashion. Like you're dying is a cultural artifact that is a transmission of wisdom. And if we don't have, if we have this malignant amnesia and we have no elders, then it's just going to become yet another you know, feather in your cap of like how awesome I am. And I don't actually think we need more of that. Like the whole point of the dying process is to be drawn down by it, you know, to collapse on the ground and be utterly almost annihilated in the consequence of someone's passing. That's Jenkinson talks about the wake, like you go to a wake, right? Well, the wake also means the, the fanning out of consequence behind your life like the mm. boat that cuts through the water, the ice. If you look up the etymology of it, there's there's a connection to Norse Viking ships and the ice that it cuts through. That's awake. It doesn't mean to be awake. That's right. <laughs> and even the word being awake is like is more about consequence than about ascension. I think that's why I'm I'm just so drawn to this concept of home funerals of having mm-hmm. um you know at least 3 days of being with the body. Right. Which people don't know. You can do that. It's totally legal. You can do that. It's legal. Yeah. There's no legal requirement for you to get a body out of your house. Um, I think, I think it varies state by state, but it's worth looking up. Yes, it does vary state by state. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, burial is a little bit of a harder one, but as far as having a body in your home and you know, you just dry ice, it's really not that hard to preserve it. And um, I think what, what really landed for me in understanding the power of the home funeral is like 
an opportunity for the community to really register that death has occurred. Yep. And there's something about death in a hospital, body taken away, cremated, boom, 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 boom. Yep. You know, don't let them see. Or, you know, the other option is like, you know, pump chemicals and put blush on their faces and <laughs> red lights. Yep. Yeah. And both feel like a stealing, like a stealing away of something so ancient and so important. Yep. Even if it's most importantly because it's painful and uncomfortable and, you know, like cutting through the ice and like just all of it the grieving, the pain, the suffering, the recognition, like that just seems so important. So, so important. And, um, something I, I wish for people and I'm, I'm hearing you speak and I, I feel challenged. Like, is it impossible to die well in the culture we're in now? Mm. That's a really good question. I think it's hard I think it's hard, but I think that if we, if we start now, you know, and I think that's a big part of what this pandemic is asking us is like, okay, well, how we don't want to deal with death. Well, guess what? So now we have this sort of weird, like kaleidoscopic un- unfurling of all the, all the death before us and seeing how, how people are kind of reacting to it. And I think that we can die well. I do think it's possible. I think there's a, even though there is a lot of malignant amnesia, I think that our bodies know things. And I really appreciate the work that you do, Becca, around this, because I feel like that's a big part of the offerings that, that, that you make is these containers to actually remember that we are, that we are quite, quite resilient. I mean, humans are kind of a weed species, you know, I mean, we're very delicate. We like, we, we do like, you know, our temperature needs to be just so, but we're going to be here. Like I don't actually envision a human extinction event in which there's like just no people. I mean, the planet might become so uninhabitable that's on the menu, but if I had to wager, a guess, we're going to be here. <laughs> we're like cockroaches. <laughs> Or dandelions. Or dandelions. That's that's <laughs> that's quite lovely. But you know, I, I we're we're not we're not beyond hope. And there's technology. There's technology that's available. And I'm not talking about technology of like gadgetry and circuitry and machines. I'm talking about the word technology, which comes from a word that means weaving. And so it's, it's really about kind of coming to terms with the depth of the trouble we're in. I think that if we can look squarely at the depth of the trouble we're in and live as if that were true, then we're going to die wise. And, I, and I'm pulling on a lot of Jenkinsonian stuff. And there's other death thinkers out there. I really appreciate also the work of Dare and Tata, who are doing a lot of work around cultural somatics right now. And repatterning nervous systems along attachment lines when we look at attachment through a cultural somatics lens. So that has opened up a whole world of opportunity for how we approach death and dying that doesn't have to be aligned with a death phobic like zombie culture. There's Mm -hmm. other modalities that are available to us because we do have nervous systems that are calibrated to be in deep good relationship with the living dreaming earth. So the more that we have the more that we lean towards enchantment, you know, the more that we lean towards myth and the elemental beings and kind of 
understanding that the world is not full of natural resources. That's not what the world is. The world is not a backdrop upon which the human drama unfurls. The world is alive. The world mm-hmm. is enchanted. Um, so the more an enchant, like that word that has, you know, kantar, like to sing, you know, the more that we sing, the more that we pay attention to music and sing awake, the more chanting, the more ritual, the more patterning on, you know, the good green earth, then we're going to be okay. We're, we're resilient. It, resilience just means to jump. It means to re-jump. And so you just keep jumping. I think we recently had a guest, Shauna Jans, who does grief I love Great Shauna. Work. Yeah, she's yeah. Cool. Shauna's Shauna's big big into Stephen's stuff too. Really yeah, mm-hmm. and we were talking about. Um, I was talking about keening, about oh. the the Irish mourning. It's a somatic experience of of moaning, wailing. Yep, I know it well. Exp- yeah, right, um, and she was saying, you know, that's all around the world, and yes. they're in in a like an indigenous culture, there would be like the whaler, the yeah. official that, that embodied the grief of the whole community. Right. And that, that just, that seems like a thing I want. <laughs> I, me too. And I've, I, I kind of have wondered, I, you know, I have this other, in another life, I was doing a lot of like performance, musical performance and songwriting and playing in rock bands and playing in bars and, and stuff like that. And, um, there's something about, like, I've kind of let a lot of that go at this point in my life. Partly, I just don't have the nervous system for it anymore. (laughs) Mm. And it's just not my primary mode of expression. And some things have to go when you become a parent and playing, playing rock and roll in bars until 2am is one of them, apparently. But I've thought about, I can really cry at will. And I, and I've done some work when I've done my own journey work through my own ancestral lineage that what's come through is a keening, um, a kind of sing crying. And I've done it in my living room and I've done it with my drum. I've never done it in front of another human being. But I do wonder if there might be a way that I might try sometime because one of the things that that role does is that it activates the mirror neurons, right? When you see someone cry, you can cry more easily. When you see Mm -hmm. someone laugh, you can laugh more easily. We know this, like we know this, and this is how babies grow. It's how we all understand each other. Um, But to have that person be able to hold that and then be a kind of a conduit or a portal or a permission slip, I think it can unlock something in the people that watch. And I've, and I've been toying with the idea of being Oh, like, please do it. <laughs> like I like come and have me keen. Like I can it's a weird superpower. I can absolutely cry at will. And I can do it in a way that has a vocal quality to it and there's a real strong influence on I don't know if you know about the Sami people or the Sami people of yeah. like Finland and mm-hmm. they're white skin, sometimes darker but often light skin circumpolar peoples that lived in, in the ancestral region of my lineage. And I'm reading a textbook right now that actually unpacks at great length the influence of circumpolar shamanism, which is present in Mongolian cultures and Finno-Ugric cultures and some Russian cultures and also some Scandinavian cultures that had a really, really, really strong influence on the Norse people. And while previously there was a lot of sort of, oh, they were totally separate and there was no there wasn't a lot of intermarrying, but there was some. 
but there was a lot of overlap in the shamanic practice. And I know you can kind of, it can get very tricky when we start talking about what shamanism is and white people doing it and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. one of the influences was the idea of a yoik, which is a type of song that the Sami people used as a technology to weave community. So like when you come into the world, when you're born, you're, you're yoiked into the world. There's a song that's, that's not for you. It, it, it is you. Mm. And that communication and that kind of vocalization, there's an interesting anecdote where they talk about if when you're, when you're, when you're yoiked into being, it also gives you a nickname. Like you get a little melody, like a little kind of micro melody that is, that represents you, but you're also like known. And so you would have this tiny, tiny song that's part of the yoik that you were given or that you were yoiked into being with. That's also your nickname. And so the idea that like, you know, if I went <laughs> that like, that's Becca <laughs> and everyone knows that <laughs> is Becca, <laughs> like, what would it be like? You know, oh, wow. what would it be like to live in a culture where, you know, you have a song that's, that's your nickname and you have guides and you have medicine and you're understood as someone that brought medicine into the world. But the idea that this song, you know, and that these vocalizations can, can unlock um, a way of living more deeply and living more congruently. I, I'm toying with it. I'm toying with it. I, I could, I could see, I could see that being a thing. Um, I was actually recently asked to, to do like an MC at a funeral that might happen or might not, depending on how, you know, the lockdown stuff goes for a music producer here in Portland. And I was wondering if it might not just make sense to, to go and do a really strong cry. Oh, my whole body says yes to that. I'll try it. Maybe I'll try it on social first and see. <laughs> that might be a good dip a toe in. Yeah. Well, think about how how much there's like delayed or suppressed grief right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. like visions of like the burial sites and the inability to attend funerals and you know all of it just how much if you could start something I just I feel very moved by that idea that you're sharing thank you it seems that the grief might be what propels us to the starry shore and I don't know for sure but from all my studies any culture worth a damn made it their business to give a plan for how to die and why. And it does seem that if there's a chorus of wails and a chorus of tears, that that's the, that's the ocean waving that, that propels us towards the ancestral shore. Um, and so it's really important that we know how to grieve and that we can do it in a way that offers that kind of technology so that we know how to, to be in right relationship. Um, Cause that seems to be the piece that's really out of, out of place at this point, you know, we're just the center of it all, but we're not, you know, death, death is going to be here. Death is, death is kind of the, the whole point. Yeah. It's always been here. It's always been here. Yeah. Hmm. It doesn't mean it's not scary. <laughs> Do you get scared of it? Oh, sure. I've always been, even as a kid, I was kind of like, I can't wait to die. I want to know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh-huh. super interested. Very, very curious about all that. But 
I find it quite frightening, the idea that I'm going to sort of age into a culture that's crumbling, where we're living through like a global pandemic where there's this big push to, to lock down and to isolate and irrespective of some of the totalitarian narratives that are kind of being, you know, propagated through through some of these social policies, which are totally legit, and there's real criticism to be had there. But it can, it has to be kind of noticed that if we had a proper, and I'm again, I'm on the Chinooklands in the you know Portland, Oregon, in the United States, so called. Like if we actually had decent healthcare, where we had a sense of belonging to each other then we wouldn't actually be in such intense lockdown because we wouldn't be so worried about overwhelming the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all that, we have an act, we had an actual presidential candidate that was like, oh yeah, let's maybe do a little bit more socialism in this particular sector so that we don't let people die in the street. And by and large, Americans said, nope, we prefer to die in the street. And so, yeah, I'm scared because <laughs> I, I actually would, would prefer to have community when I get sick and, and so sick that I might die. And, you know, I was a long time tobacco user and under, frankly, under these conditions recently, I've, I've gone back to tobacco here and there. I'm not a daily smoker. Um, I'm not a regular smoker, but I'm not an irregular smoker either. (laughs) Like I definitely, when shit goes down, that was one of my oldest crutches, you know, and as the stress of this situation has kind of continued, I have backslid a bit and used tobacco. And it makes me very scared of my own powerlessness over some of those behaviors, but also like the impact that it could have if, if slash when I get coronavirus. That's totally scary. Who's going to, how, how is that going to work? Mm-hmm. And even if it's not now, like we're looking at a future where, you know, waves of this stuff come. And I, I'm somebody that has definitely done lung damage over the years. And so it's quite scary to me to just be facing aging in a culture that clearly could care less. I mean, we just, we don't value elders. We don't value, we, we value like economic and unfettered growth overall. And we, we soundly rejected, you know, leadership that might offer us a different way. So that's pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. The good news is that I do think that if we um, take care of each other locally, that I do, th- I do think that there are, there are other models and we are going to be able to map ourselves onto some other models, but the fear is real. And I don't want to pretend that it's not. Yeah, I don't either. It's like just always there for me. And I've just decided to beckon it to sit down. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, here we are. That's really the way I think is like that you, you can have a, the fear has a seat at the table too. You know, the rage had, has a seat at the table too. Those are, I I have a kind of animist sort of understanding of, of things and those spirits need feeding as well. And the more we say, no, you don't belong here. There's no place for your, there's no place for fear here. There's no place for death here. Well, they're going to come thundering upon Mm -hmm. us. And so here we are. And we can us and and we make war on them and say no, you're not welcome here. You don't belong here. When really the message is, oh yeah, you are actually a part of this. We are all, you know, it's kind of baked in. We don't, we don't. There's not like the human experience and then the viral experience. <laughs> like we are right. actually. When people say we're in it together, that's a, that's actually what it means <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Thank you for sharing so much of what you've shared. I feel like in this last like 45 minutes, I feel expanded in my perspective. Mm -hmm. And what it's made me realize is in my own (laughs) internalized death phobic response to this experience, particularly being pregnant, the fear is, you know, is here that I had some tunnel vision going on. You know what I mean? Just like survival And you brought up some things that really expanded my mind. And I really appreciate that about you Mm. in the works of art you create and your essays and your videos and everything you share. It's it's just such a needed perspective in the culture, Mm. uh, particularly in the spiritual community where it can just become one voice (laughs) or, you know, like parroting one text over and over where I think you're. I I do hear you when you say you are, you feel like you've always been the one seeing the world coming. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I want to like validate and honor you, see you as that and appreciate you for that. I'll receive that. Yeah. And, and likewise in reflection to the work that you're doing in ritual and community building and working with women as they identify as such, That's good deep work. And being able to do that while also, you know, kind of holding space for how threadbare Mm -hmm. it all is, you know, we kind of like, we're going to, we're going to kind of, you know, I just see you sort of putting the shawl over, over, over people as they, as they enter into a process and you're just like (laughs) offering this, you know, here's, here's what we got. And it's kind of this, it's a threadbare thing that we have really, you know, it's rich but we are just now kind of being the ones that are weaving that back together. Mm. And I, I see you and I see you doing that weaving. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of, um, it reminds me, and I'll just maybe close with this, that there is a story I read, it was probably in Rolling Stone magazine, like 15, 20 years ago or something, but it was like, it was about a person's experience in solitary confinement, finding a spider. And, Aside from all my abolitionist tendencies and stuff about prisons, I don't want to kind of get into that, but noting, (laughs) noting the loadedness of that, Mm -hmm. the idea that this, this, we're so um, limited in what we have access to in terms of what I think real human culture was and is in certain places and could be, that there's a way that, you know, this spider that has been the only living thing in this really small confined space that dominant culture has offered us and it's spinning this tiny little web you know and it's so not what we maybe what we were maybe sold as the bill of goods when we were growing up um and definitely not anywhere near the kind of beautiful woven technology fabrics in which you know the elders of a warp on the weft of the culture and we don't have that time kind of you know really strong weaving we have this tiny golden thread of this prison spider you know, that, that is linking us and, and thank God for that. Like we have that, you know, we have this little thread that's still alive and it can be everything. It can be enough because we, we get to share it and we can weave together from what we have. Um, something really beautiful, really, truly. Hmm. Thank you. It has to be enough. <laughs> yes. for now. Yeah. Thanks for right. Thanks for this this thread of an offering. It brings great, great comfort to me to know that there are people like you out there doing this. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, same. Right back at ya. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.